Um, we're we're kind of into that second part of chapter 20. Uh, so we're going to start back at verse number 7, which is, is kind of superscripted in your Bibles, the defeat of Satan. Okay, So we're in this same, same period of, of time uh, that we've been talking about throughout our study. Uh, we're at that, that place where uh, that half a time has begun. And during that half a time, what we see happening is uh, in the first part of chapter 20, these two beasts that have served serve Satan, right? The political, economic beast as well as the religious beast are overcome. And um, that, that concludes with the end of what is called the thousand year period or the millennium, all right? So uh, kind of again, kind of going back to that idea, when you hear the word millennium, what is a millennium? Uh, ten, 10 times 10 times 10. It's that perfect time uh, that began with the birth of Jesus Christ and that will conclude with his second return. After the beasts are defeated, we then turn to the defeat of Satan himself. And it starts with this seventh verse. Uh, and when the thousand years are ended, all right, so we're right at the very end of time, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Um, reading that again today, we, we kind of started down the road talking about this last time we met. Um, you know, I was just thinking it would be nice to revive some of these Old Testament names. You know, just kind of uh, get them back in the cycle again. Gog Biggs. I'm just thinking that just, that just doesn't sound quite right, right? Meet Gog and my brother Magog. Not quite right. When you look back in the Old Testament, these are actual names, okay? Gog we trace. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago back to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And uh, we find that he's a later descendant of Reuben, okay? Magog appears in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Right? And Magog is uh, a son of Japheth, who is in turn a son of, of Noah. All right? Here, in, in this section of the Revelation, these two terms are not being used to refer back to the literal people, but rather to what symbolically point to, when you say Gog and Magog, these beasts that have served Satan, and at the end of the gathering together of this, this army, if you will, to, to fight this last battle against God. So here in the Revelation, Gog and Magog are, just, are really just symbolic, pointing to uh, this, this battle that ensues at the very end of time. It's kind of what you would say Satan's last gasp uh, battle against God. In the Old Testament, the best place to see Gog and Magog is, is actually in Ezekiel, in two chapters, chapter 38 and 39, okay? Flip over there for just a minute to, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Let's skip around just a little bit, but <clears throat> notice right at the beginning of chapter 38, you, you get introduced to, to Gog, and here, Magog is actually not a person, but a place. Chapter 38 of Ezekiel begins this way. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. So here the, here the terms are not people, 
but places. If you get on a map and you try to discover, well, where, where, was, where, where was Magog? Doesn't exist on the map. Right? So the, the terms are used uh, symbolically. Here we see that uh, um, Gog of the land of Magog is the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And this prophecy comes against him. And so God says to Ezekiel, say, say this to, to Gog. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about, put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all of your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them, with buckler, shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, put with all of them, shield and helmet, Gomer and all of his hordes, Beth Torgmah, from the uttermost parts of the north with all of his hordes, many people are with you. Okay? So if, if, I'm, if I'm a Jew and I hear John in the Revelation use the word Gog and Magog, I'm familiar with this prophecy of Ezekiel. And what I know about it is Ezekiel was called to prophesy against all of those countries that were Israel's great enemies. Persia, Cush, Beth Torgmah. And what God was saying to those countries through Ezekiel is, I, I've allowed you, right, I've allowed you to have reign over Israel for a short time. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to expose you for who you are. You are my enemy. And the way that he describes it through Ezekiel is rather graphic. Uh, like sticking a hook in a fish mouth and pulling it. Right? You ever think about that? This little fish swimming along and all of a sudden, bam, that hook's in him. And he's going nowhere but where that hook pulls him. That's what he's saying is, I, God, have always been in complete authority. And while... While Israel's enemies at time are given under the authority of God the ability to, to come against Israel and even succeed in battle, God says, here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to expose my enemies for who they are like a fish getting a hook. I'm going to pull you out and I'm going to do what? I'm going to destroy you. All right? So you, you get this picture of destruction. Skip over to verse 16, same chapter. You will come up against my people Israel. So what you're, you're going to come up against them. In fact, like a cloud covering the land, you're so, you're so mighty. Always when you, when you look at maps of Israel, you know, sometimes we, we think, well, Israel was this great big country. No, it's not. It's like this little tiny dot that's surrounded by the giants of the world. And that's what God is saying, is that the, the enemy comes against Israel like a mighty cloud. But guess what happens? In the latter days, in the latter days, you will come against my land, and, but I will, use, I will use that time where you come against my people to vindicate, to vindicate my holiness. And so you pick that up in these verses. You come against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, 
I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Well, historically, there are just numerous times where uh, these great empires that have come against Israel, God destroys them, right? And, and shows the world his might. Symbolically, that's pointing forward to the last time in history where this battle that we typically call Armageddon takes place, Satan's last gasp, it's a spiritual battle against God, and he is, God vindicates himself. He shows Satan for who he is and destroys him. Okay, so what, what John is doing in the Revelation is he's using this Old Testament picture of these times in history where God has vindicated his people by destroying mighty enemies. God says, I'm going to destroy the mightiest enemy of them all. I'm going to destroy Satan himself. Okay? Go to chapter 39. It just continues. Right? And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say this. Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north. I will lead you against the mountains of Israel, then I will strike your bow from your left hand and will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes of the people who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey, ever sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Okay? So can you kind of hear in those words, kind of a, a word picture, that we've just heard in the 19th, 20th chapter of Revelation, where God destroys his enemy and the birds of the air come and pluck out their eyes and eat them and devour them, right? That's really what's happening here. Flip, flip back over to chapter 20. He's painting this picture for us. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Okay? Satan feels like he's in control. I'm coming against God. He's never in control. It's always under God's authority. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so you have here in this uh, uh, middle section of chapter 20 now the complete defeat of all of Satan's kingdom. And now the end has come. And we'll move on to uh, the actual judgment day. By the way, um, just kind of looking at this, and I, I pulled out a, a, a book that's one of my favorites. And I thought, you know, coming up here, trying to, trying to line out a message series for the next two years. And uh, I think one, one of those I really want to try to dig into is um, this question of, of hell. Because I think that we're living in a world today where so many people uh, want to deny that there really even is a hell. Okay? And not just people outside the church. You, know, you, you run into people outside of the church, not non-Christians, 
And there's kind of this general assumption in, in, in America today that unless you're this horrible, terrible, you know, terroristic person, when you die, you'll go to heaven. Whatever heaven is. Okay? And, um, I mean, talk, talk to folks outside of the church. That's true, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. You know, I, I've been pretty good. I, I wasn't a horrible person, so when I die, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. I always ask this question, is there a hell? And it's really interesting to me to find that so many people go, well, no, not really a hell. I mean, there's hell on earth. It's kind of what you go through here. You go through some pains and you go through horror. But when you die, as, as long as you haven't been like flying airplanes into towers, you, you go to heaven. There's, there's going to be peace. It'll be good. Like, really? No, no hell. And uh, yet when you look at the Bible, um, time and time again, these descriptions of hell are given and uh, for a reason, to, to say that this, this, this God who created us uh, and said to us, live, live in my way or, or there will be death, right? In order to be just, ha has to carry out a, a hell. Has to. Or, or he's not just. He's not true to his work. And so I think we're going to take that on um, coming up is just kind of go through that, um, those different scriptures that just kind of like John is doing here, paint that picture that no, there's a real devil, there's a real hell, and uh, it is a place of torment, and it's why God sends us out to do what? To bring the gospel to people, to, to spare people uh, from hell. I think we'll call our series, I don't know what we're going to call it, something like Hell Yes. We'll put that on our little board out there. See what happens. Right. Okay. Let's move to the judgment. Once we have the defeat of Satan and his enemies, we kind of move into this, what, what theologians will call the great white throne judgment. Okay. And, and so kind of pick up these words in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Okay, so answer this question today. When I die, am I judged then? Okay, so, so you're saying, yes, I'm judged then. Okay, and, and I agree with that. You know, all throughout the scriptures, there's always this, this tension between li living in the now, what we see happening now, and yet expecting the, the not yet, right? What's to come? And so right now we could say, is Satan defeated? Yes, he's defeated right now. Uh, does it look like he's defeated? Not at all. It looks like he's having a heyday, especially here in America, right? And, and so you look at it, you're like, oh, no, Satan isn't defeated. Satan is alive and well. Well, no, he is defeated, but in the now, he is allowed to exercise within a parameter of God's authority. There comes this this not yet this time of his final judgment. Same thing is true. When we die, am I judged? Yes, I am. Okay. My, my soul leaves my body and will be either in what we call heaven or hell. Right? What Revelation 20 is taking us to then is this white throne judgment, which is the, the final judgment of all time in the destruction of the old earth and the recreation of the new earth and the separation of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ from those who have not. So that, that's what we're getting here as I looked and I saw this great white throne
and him uh, who was, was seated upon it. From his presence, John writes, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Okay? Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of take a trip over to Second Peter chapter 3 uh, because I think there's a number of scriptures that help paint pictures of what that last day looks like when this judgment takes place. Peter, in uh, his second epistle, in the third chapter, uh, speaks, I think, in rather plain language to the church of, of his time and certainly to, to you and I today. Here's what he says. Just kind of go to the beginning of chapter 3. He says, this is the second time that I, I'm writing to you, my beloved. In both of my letters, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these the world and then existed was deluged by water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. He is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Okay. And I read those words and I think about um, this scene that we're getting in the Revelation with this white throne judgment and the, the heavens and the skies flee from the presence of God. And, and the picture that's painted for us again and again in Scripture is this picture of, of, of men who are, who are raised up into, into the heavens, what we would call heavens, where Jesus has come down, right, with the blast of a trumpet. And this white throne judgment takes place there in the heavens, where bodies and souls have been rejoined together, and now the final judgment is going to be made before the earth is what is just burned up, just completely destroyed. Not just the earth, but all of, all of created universe is destroyed like that. And then remade. Okay? So that's the judgment that he's, looking, that he's looking at is this final judgment that takes place really in the sky prior to us descending down onto the new earth. Okay? Flip back over to uh, chapter 20. Verse 12. I looked and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. This is kind of interesting to me. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
and the and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now notice the difference between the plural and the singular given the word book. Okay? So it says the books were open and then another book was open which is the book of life. Okay? So again these are symbolic words but what they're, what they're picturing is, is the distinct reality that if, if you'll picture it this way, each one of us has a book. What is written in the book? Well, according to this, it says, the judge, dead were judged by what was written in the book. They were judged according to what they had done. Okay? So are your works written in your book? What does your book look like? Um, I think most of us, if we, if we were honest, if I asked you the question, if I pulled your book off the shelf, um, let me just ask you this question. Would you want me to read it? Okay. So in our minds, we're like, um, yeah, there's John over there. He's like, um, hey, pull Pat's off. Just read Just read her. <laughs> Just leave mine on the shelf. Just grab, just grab hers. Right? Now, all of us would say, you know what? What's, what's written in the book? There's that part of us, uh, as we go through our life, that kind of a, lives under deception. That we, we sometimes kind of live out our lives as though, you know what? Uh, we're, we're hidden from, from God. Okay? And that, that he really doesn't see the things that we do. Uh, when we stop and allow the Spirit to speak into us, we, rec we recognize the, the reality that, guess what? Um, no, there's nothing that is actually hidden from God. Um, I'm thankful, and I think all of you in this room are thankful, that there are certain things that are hidden from each other, right? Um, if people knew our thoughts, it wouldn't be good, right? Um, everywhere we went, if you could just see into a person's mind, you would say, oh my goodness, whoa, what, what was that thought? Oh, my goodness gracious, right? Well, God sees all of that, okay? And so you, you kind of get this, this thought in your mind that, man, if you pull my book off of the shelf, it, it is not good at, at all. And then there's this book of life. Here's the book of life. And the book of life are those names of people whose, whose books are perfect. Because... We are actually judged by what we have done. And the standard for God's book of life is, I will transfer from these books here, I'll transfer the names of all of those people who were perfect. Where when I read their book, there's, there's not one sin. When I read their book, there's no imperfections. They carried out my law. When I read their book, they loved and gave themselves to my calling and mission. Those are the names that will end up in the book of life. Is that true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Okay. So, here's what we believe is you and I, we are not hidden from Christ we are actually hidden in Christ. And there's a big difference. Okay.
To be hidden in Christ is to embrace the theology of the Bible that teaches us that when Jesus Christ gave his life for you, it means that everything that he did during his life and his payment for your sin and his death are recorded in your book. So that when, when God pulls your book off of the shelf, even yours, John, and opens it up and looks at it, what he reads is, is not your works, but the works of the Son himself. And so he looks at that book and says, transfer that name into the book of life. Perfect. That's the theology that we live under, okay? Many times when we're at a funeral, we'll actually, you know, take, take these words out of the Revelation and remind people that this person that's being buried, you know, will come to a place where they are judged according to their works. That's actually part of the uh, funeral liturgies, if you will. And I've always thought, you know that, should we leave that in there? Because... How will people hear that? Well, over my years, I've come to appreciate the fact that by leaving those words in there, when you're at a funeral, there are people that are standing around the, that, that casket. And when you read those words, this person, this beloved person, who will be judged according to their works. Part of, part of what happens is the spirit goes, zoom, and the law hits you. And, and that's not bad. I think in some ways that's really good. Because there, there are some people who that hits and they go, oh, you're, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to be in one of those someday. I, I'm, I'm going to be in there. Did that guy, that preacher guy just said that, that I'm going to be judged according to my works. That, that isn't good, right? The law hits us. The gospel frees us. It's what releases us from that fear or that anxiety is what allows me to say, but wait a minute. When I, when I am judged, I am judged not guilty in Jesus Christ. And so that, that's really appropriate that, that John, you know, through this revelation, kind of lifts that up, that the books are opened, and then the book of life. And that the book of life shows those who what, have lived a life of perfection according to Jesus Christ. And it's only through him that we achieve that perfection. Uh, verse 13 says, uh, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, again, again see the words, according to what they had done. Um, one of the great stumbling blocks for uh, the Romans and the, the Greeks in the time of the Apostles was this, this idea of the resurrection. And, um, you know, we're using this language, death and Hades gave up their dead. Remember in the Old Testament, Hades is, is used in two different ways. Uh, most often, Hades refers to what? The grave, where your body is placed. Okay? There are times when Hades refers to hell itself. Okay? But it's used both ways. So when it says Hades gave up their, the dead, it's the grave that gives up the dead bodies and, and the souls uh, come together in them. The Greeks and the Romans stumble over that. They could not get that in their heads. They said, well, how in the world is this God going to resurrect all these bodies? 
Um, you can almost imagine this conversation. <laughs> what about that guy that got eaten by the lion, right? And, uh, you know, his body's not in a grave. His body became fertilizer, right? So um, how is God going to do this? And you go back, if you look at some old preaching, like uh, from the Roman Greco period, it's interesting the Christians tried to appeal to the Romans' minds. And uh, some of them came up with theories where they'd say, well, I think God numbers each particle of the body. And that way, when he gets ready to pull them back together, he knows which pieces go together, kind of like a Lego set. I'm like, come on, people. God, God does not need Lego instructions, right? It's the resurrection. It's God who just works and brings, brings back those bodies no matter where we happen to be. Um, Sometimes I get asked the question, Mike, I know you have, Terry, I know you have, is it okay for us to, as, as Christians to do cremation? Can you do cremation? Um, yeah. Uh, God, does God care? Uh, no. When you go back into the Old Testament, quite often, what, did they, what do they do with your body? They ground up your bones and stuck them in a jar, right? Stuck that away. I mean, that, that's what was left of you. So we don't have any, any opposition to, um, to, to, to cremation. It's, it's kind of like that, uh, that, that big billboard I saw one time in Texas. It says, don't get buried in debt, right? And uh, they were trying to sell cremation services to people instead of, uh, instead of caskets. But it doesn't matter to God. You know, to God, he raises up the body from no matter where we are. By the way, I did have one, I did have one uh, family in the church in Texas that were, they were Nebraskans. The dad had died, and so the mom was a single mom, raised up her family. One of her sons died. It was really hard. And, um, you know, at the funeral, I said, what, what, what do you want to do with the body? And, and she says, well, so we're going to do a cremation. I said, okay. And... Uh, I said, "What are you? Are you gonna? Are, are you gonna put the the cremation at a you know at a funeral, at, like at a cemetery?" Or no, she says. Um, she says, "Pastor, she says you can't tell anyone this, but she says my husband he uh, we poured him on the 50 yard line at, at Memorial Stadium." I said, "Oh, okay. Well, we're gonna try to sneak this one in too." <laughs> I'm like, I'm like. Okay, you're going to get vacuumed up is what's going to happen to you. <laughs> God can even take you out of vacuum cleaners and suck you up, all right? It's, it's okay. It's A-okay. Now, this is kind of interesting how this, how this, this section uh, ends. It says, then death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, right? Hell is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so in this, in this judgment, this lake of fire idea is, is again, used multiple times um, to, to, to point us to this reality that uh, we call hell. I want to go to one other place that's kind of interesting to me. Pastor Carl kept kept walking in and he says, why is my name on the board? And I go, well, that's, that's because I don't write very clearly. It's actually 1 Corinthians 15. All right, so turn to Carl or 1 Corinthians 15. And um, this idea of 
death itself being thrown into the lake of fire is really picked up by St. Paul here in uh, what has been for years one of my favorite chapters of Scripture. All right, I'm going to take you over to verse 12. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 is, is the Scripture where we get, this has just always been one of my favorite you know, passages of the scripture. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Okay. I've always liked that. The, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. Um, the Greek language is re really earthy. And um, the word for sting comes out of the verb scorpizomai. So you can hear you can hear a creature in it, right? Scorpizomai. Anyone in this room ever been stung by a scorpion? Besides me? Okay. If you had, you'd remember it, right? Uh, when a scorpion stings you, it's usually a sneak attack. You're grabbing a piece of wood, or you're reaching up, um, you're cutting a palm branch, and all of a sudden that scorpion smacks you, and you're like, oh my gosh. Well, scorpions are a part of life in the desert, right? And so that, that verb has this connotation of this horrible sting. For a long time in my life, I used to just wrestle with this scripture because I think, you know what? Death does sting. You know, when, you're, when someone you love dies, it stings. You think to yourself, man, I don't, I don't like this. And then, I, then you go on to read what Paul is talking about. He goes, no, the sting of death is what? Is the law. That's the sting of death. It's stinger is the law. The law convicts you. The law stays in you. It kills you, right? The gospel covers up the poison of the law and saves us. And so what Paul is using is this very earthy language to say, death wears your sting. The stinger is taken out of it. Why? Because the law has been overcome by the victory of Christ, by the gospel, okay? Um, Paul has a beautiful way of, of helping us understand what, what the revelation is saying, that death itself gets thrown into the lake of fire. Um, go back to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? By the way, which, which group of, of, of Old Testament scholars said there is no resurrection of the dead? Sadducees. Okay. Um, actually, the Sadducees, I believe, represent probably the majority of the secular Jewish church today, right? It's, uh, if, if, you listen, if you listen to a lot of Jews, they're no different than the Sadducees were at Paul's time. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Someone would say to me, Luke, you've given your whole life to something that just is meaningless, completely meaningless, if Christ is not raised from the dead. In fact, Paul goes on to say, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about him that he did raise Christ from the dead. And if he did not, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So he's saying, you know what? Then, we, then charge us with misrepresenting God. We, we are preaching this resurrection of the dead. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. There's only one way that you and I 
can come here today and say, I know that I will be in heaven forever. It's because Jesus Christ is resurrected. That stamp, that seal of God's approval placed upon his death is the resurrection. And it's what allows you and I today to come here and say, you know what? No. If, if he weren't raised from the dead, then everything that Christianity represents is, is meaningless. But he has been raised from the dead. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Have pity upon those preachers. Have pity upon those Christians if Christ has not been raised from the dead. And so Paul's turn comes in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man also has come the resurrection of the dead. I think it's probably one of the hardest pieces of theology in Scripture to, to comprehend is that, that Jesus Christ, when he's born into this world, is fully and at all times man and is fully and at all times God. Can God die? If I'm a Muslim, what do I say? Nope. If I'm a Jew, what do I say? Nope. If I'm from any monotheistic religion, I say that's the problem with you Christians is God can't die. Jesus Christ is at all times fully God and is at all times fully man. Can man die? Yes. So how does Jesus perform a miracle? The divine attributes of God are transmitted to the human attributes of God. He acts in his divinity. How does he die? God chooses not to, in Jesus Christ, communicate the attributes of his divinity to his humanity. Man dies. God dies. Okay. Hardest section of scripture to, to comprehend. That's one of the toughest theologies. Our minds will never grasp it. And yet, the law required that a man must die for man's sin. By man, sin came into the world. By man, sin must be paid for. Jesus Christ said, I'm that person. I'm a man, fully. And so I pay for that. And so he says in verse 22, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all are now made alive. Each in his own order. Christ is the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father. Listen to this. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. That's what the Revelation has just been telling us. I destroyed the beasts. I destroyed Satan. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed. The last enemy of God to be destroyed is death. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, I now introduce into this world death. It is our enemy. And yet it is an enemy of grace. Because through it we are released from these bodies and the brokenness of this world into the grace of God. At the end what happens is death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. That enemy is defeated and destroyed forever. Verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are in subjection, it's plain. 
that he is accepted who put all things under him. So really what Paul is teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 is this exact picture that John is receiving in the Revelation that at the end we have the defeat of the beast, we have the defeat of the second beast, we have the defeat of Satan, and we even take death itself, our last enemy, all of it thrown into the lake of fire. And now here we are in this white throne judgment and we're ready for the end to come. That's where it takes us. All right, we'll pick up there with the new heaven and the new earth, chapter 21. Lord God.